At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. With real estate development in Atlanta, a looming presence, many older businesses have disappeared, or the buildings they occupy are sold and torn down. Well, the owners of the award-winning Kimball House restaurant have turned that narrative upside down and successfully secured their future in the process. They now own the 136-year-old former train depot that houses their nationally recognized eatery. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes brings us that upbeat story later this hour. We'll also hear from the artist Michael Heffernan. He combines original poetry with visual art in his new exhibition, Wayfinding. First, the first couple of pop and soul. That's how music producer Questlove described Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr., the Grammy Award-winning husband and wife vocalists who co-founded The Fifth Dimension. The powerhouse duo celebrates 53 years of marriage and as many decades of massive pop hits since the 1960s, including Up, Up, and Away and The Age of Aquarius, Let the Sunshine In. McCoo and Davis take the stage at the Rialto Center for the Arts on January 21st to share a repertoire of classic favorites and newer editions. They join me now via Zoom to talk more about the enduring career that's brought them here. Welcome to City Lights. Well, we're happy to be here. Thank you so much, Lois. Thank you. I read that you met during the creation of the Fifth Dimension, previously known as the Versatiles. That was in 1966. Will you tell us the story of first meeting and how that led to marriage? (laughs) Well, that's a long story. That's a long story. We didn't look at each other as lovers or, or, or friends. We, actually, we would we were entering a group, and the group was called the Versatiles. And uh, we decided that uh, this is this was going to be our life is singing. 
There was no love bug in the beginning of our relationship. <laughs> it just, in, just work. In fact, I always say, if someone had told me that the that this guy that I was just meeting was going to be my husband for over 50 years, I would have said, no way. <laughs> oh. well, I, I was saying the same thing on the other side, Lord. <laughs> and yet, here you are, this amazing testament to marriage, love, and phenomenal work together. It's one thing to be blessed with a good marriage, quite another to find one that's also successful as a business relationship and artistic partnership. You are such experts. You even wrote about it in the book, Up, Up, and Away, How We Found Love, Faith, and lasting marriage in the entertainment world. So how does your 53-year marriage succeed along a nearly 60-year-old professional partnership? Well, you know, Lois, we, we have to give all that glory to God because when we look back on our lives, it seems like he was guiding us all the way because the things that you said about our marriage and, and our friendship, and uh, being in, in the entertainment world all these years and, and working together every day, all day, we know it's hard for couples to do, uh, for people to stay together like that, but we have managed to do that. And uh, we can only attribute that to the Lord just guiding our careers. And a, a strong friendship. And that's how things evolved. You know, uh, we, used to, we used to ride to rehearsal together and we would talk about our lives and the more we shared about our lives to one another, the more we found that we had a lot in common. Mm -hmm. I love starting out as friends and then the love that was simmering comes into full force. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what happened. That's, that's kind of like the way it happened. <laughs> oh, wow. You let the sun shine in, that was for sure. Now, in your long and storied careers, you've performed in front of the Pope, presidents, and audiences of multiple major network TV programs. Are there any particular events that stand out for you as crown jewel career moments, people you've met or places you've performed? Yes, well, I, I can tell you the, the the first one that you uh, that you mentioned, performing for the Pope, that was a true true blessing for us because, I mean, we had, we had, we had sung for presidents and and major, like you said, major uh, companies and major series and World Series and Super Bowl bowl games, and but then then all of a sudden we were asked to sing for the Pope, which was like, wow, this this is beautiful and. Uh, that, that really stands out as, as one of the, the, the greatest things of our career. And not only that, we were blessed by the Pope. Oh, wow. He that gave, us, he gave us rosaries. And yes. we said, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. For people of faith, even if you aren't Catholic. It's just the whole idea of it. You know, right. uh, it, was, it was amazing. Another realm, indeed. So what can you tell us about the repertoire you will perform 
at the Rialto. I imagine there will be classics. Would you talk about the classics as well as the newer material on the program? Uh, we learned a long time ago that uh, when we do, anytime we do a performance, that the audience is expecting to hear certain songs that represent the music of their lives. And we want to make sure that we don't disappoint them. Because on occasion, you know, through the years, we've tried different ideas and different directions. And we found out that, boy, if you don't give the audience some of those songs that really are important to them, how they fell in love, what they were doing at that time in their lives, if you don't give them a chance to hear and relive those moments, they're not going to be too happy. <laughs> I mean, we we talking about songs like Up, Up and Away and and You Don't Have to Be a Star and the one that Marilyn got on her knees and, and begged me to marry her, Wedding Bell Blues. Don't believe me. <laughs> <laughs> I love you so, I always will. And in your voice, I hear a choir of carousels. Carousel. But am I ever gonna hear my wedding But also, we'll be doing some uh, some some things from our latest uh, CD, performing the music of the of the Beatles. Of uh, we call it the Lennon McCartney icon. Yes, yes, and we'll be doing some things from that uh, uh, on the show, this, which is our latest uh, production. and reoriented these songs in a very powerful way. Would you tell us more about how you conceived that album? Well, you know, what happened was we, we were doing our, our previous show and we had a, a Beatles medley in the middle of the show. And our, our, our young producer, his name is Nick Mendoza, he, he was at the show and he heard us singing these Beatles songs. And this was all during the time of a protest and the, the things were going on around the country. And uh, he was wondering, you know, he knew that Blackbird was a sort of a, a civil rights message, especially that was written by the Beatles. And uh, he asked us, he said, well, how do you guys feel about what's going on out in the, in, in the society today with these people how the young people want to know how you guys feel, and uh, we told them that uh, we we felt that uh, that what the young people were doing was right, and uh, and he suggested that we we, we would do something uh, behind Blackbird to make a statement, and and we did. We 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 gathered some of their music and and started to go to go to work on the, uh, making our statement about what was going on, and that's 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 how this album came about.
So you reframed those familiar lyrics. I imagine you had to ask permission of Paul McCartney or whoever owns the rights. Is that correct? Well, actually, you, I don't think that we have to ask permission to change it, the the arrangement. We, but they still have the rights to their to their songs and the publishing or whatever it is that they. All we do is just interpret it a, a different way. So you didn't have to wait and go through red tape to reframe the familiar lyrics. No. no artists, well, we artists didn't change were, the lyrics. No, we didn't change the lyrics. So, we just sang yeah. the same lyrics. Right. We just we just rearranged it the way that that it's like it's like any artist can can take a song and and redo it. It's, it's like a cover song, and we do it the way we feel it. But it still belongs to the Beatles. It still belongs to them and the publishing company. Yeah. As long as we get the approval, it's it's okay. Right. I say, okay, so you you did have the approval, and it is a powerful message because you're talking about the young Black bodies going up in the air, and this is all in the wake of the murders. Mm-hmm. Yes, led to the, it, it was it was powerful lyrics before we even did it the way we wanted to do it. Right, because when they saw the same things, which was beautiful for them to be even be able to see it, to be concerned enough about yeah. what was happening in our country and write about it. Yes, if you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with music legends Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. They are performing at the Rialto Center for the Arts this Saturday. I was just amazed at the creativity, and why didn't I think of that? Why didn't why doesn't this come to mind immediately for everyone with the way you feature Ticket to Ride, you pay tribute to Rosa Parks. Yes, that was suggested by my management team too, as as we all collaborated on 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 this CD on the together. Project, yes, and and they said, well, you know, Rosa Parks was riding the bus, and they did, she refused to give up a seat, but she got a but she had a ticket to ride. She was supposed to ride that bus, you and know. She don't care. And she didn't care. <laughs> she didn't care if she was going to throw it off. She wasn't going to move a seat. Yeah, it's just it just kind of it just kind of went together with with, yes. with the song. was we just thought it was a, a wonderful way of restating it yes mm, i think it was brilliant last year the legendary music producer quest love released the documentary summer of soul about the 1969 harlem cultural festival 
which was an epic concert series that drew over 300,000 mostly black Americans in celebration of soul music. And much of that footage was lost and forgotten until the documentary came out. And in fact, many people are just now becoming aware of an event that truly rivaled Woodstock as uh, an iconic time capsule of 60s music. What do you remember about that concert, and what meaning did it have for you? You know, one of the most amazing experiences was seeing that audience, seeing the seeing the people in Harlem coming to the concert. They were it was it was a free concert, and they were there. Uh, the uh, the the parents brought their children. The children were excited to hear the music. Uh, and it was just a mass, you know, just masses of people that were there. It was such an exciting moment. We remember when, when, uh, one of Questlove's people contacted us to ask us, uh, about the experience and how we felt about it. And we said it was so amazing that there was a, an energy and excitement of the, of the audience that was there, that they were coming to see something that was going to be very special and to see artists that they admired, you know, Motown artists and artists from um, just from all around that were that they were going to get a chance to hear. A lot of these people had never seen these artists and, 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 and couldn't really afford to go and see them, you know? Yes. So this was a free concert. So they showed up, they were, they were anxious to see them. They brought their families. It was calm. There was no, 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 no drugs. And, and it was a lot of the, even though there was a lot of blacks, there were a lot of Latinos yes. because they all stayed together there in Harlem. It was just a beautiful time together. And, and, and uh, we wanted, we wanted to, to look back at that and see what we look like 50 years ago. <laughs> you know, we, 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 it was amazing. We had had the change in our faces. <laughs> and so we wanted to check it out. <laughs> As we sat there and had a chance to watch the footage, uh, Questlove and his people, they decided that they wanted to uh, show us some of the footage and get our response. They asked us, do you mind if we perhaps photograph you guys or, or show you guys watching yourselves 50 years earlier? Do you mind if we if we shoot it while you're watching it? And we said, no, no, this is this is incredible. Right. And we watched it and we were got so emotional. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, you performed alongside the likes of Stevie Wonder, Sly yes. and the Family Stone, and Nina Simone to name right. Yes, amazing artists. Right. right. What was the vibe among you artists? Was there a shared feeling that this was something monumental. Well, you know, during the time we were shooting this, actually, we wasn't all together because uh, certain certain artists came in at different times of the schedule. Uh, we just happened to be working in New York during that time when, when it was going on. They had uh, pulled us over during that particular time. And then right after we finished our performance, we, we had to leave to go to another one. So we didn't get a chance to really see 
and and spend time with the other artists. But uh, we have seen uh, like uh, Gladys Knight and talked to her about it. In fact, when we went back to participate in the, uh, the in this 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 thing happening all over again, uh, we we ran into Gladys back there. We were all went back and performed it one one more time there at uh, at the park. Now. I'd love to know more about the live band you are bringing for this show in Atlanta. You have worked with music legends, Ray Charles, Tina Turner. Obviously, you're going to be singing with amazing live musicians. Who are some of them? Well, this we're bringing our musical family with us. Yeah, <laughs> uh, these are the people that that work with us together. Uh, we 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 travel around the country together. Uh, some of the names may not be uh, familiar uh, to some people, but we but we have top musicians that are performing with us, and we love working together. And and uh, they they do so much to they bring so much energy and. Yeah and fire to yeah. to our shows and and they're just a joy to be with our our background singers have been with us for over 20 years i mean we have we have musicians who 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 played on the johnny carson show yeah. and played with with uh with top, uh, musicians, top musicians top and artists, top yeah. artists and uh our background singers have sung with uh marvin gay and people like that i mean that, that, that those are the kind of people that but what we do, those are the kind of people that we have to have who are professional enough to be able to play the, the kind of music that we that we deal with, you know. So so we have we have a beautiful musical family. And people who are of a caliber worthy of performing with icons like you too. Now you are no strangers to the camera as well as the concert stage. You became the first black couple to host a major network TV show in 1977 with the Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. show on CBS. And then later, Marilyn, in addition to hosting the variety show Solid Gold for several years, you also took to screen acting, appearing <laughs> on, yeah, Days of Our Lives, as if you weren't busy doing other things, and you were in several movies and shows throughout the 80s and 90s. How did you discover your talent as an actor? Well, it was something that was of interest, and uh, when the opportunities came along, and uh, and the scheduling worked out. It was it was it was fun, you know. As I think, as a as a performer, there's so many parts of of the performing experience that uh, can be so fulfilling. You know, when we were we were down in in Georgia and we were working on uh, one of the Waltons films. Yeah, and uh, that's where that was being shot, and and we just really enjoyed that so much. And it was it was great to be in Georgia and 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 realizing all the wonderful productions that are coming out of Georgia with the work that Tyler Perry is doing and and so so much energy coming out of your uh, out of your state. We're hoping that we can get a chance to see some of the people that we work with 
on the film, uh, uh, the Waltons, what, the Waltons at, 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 at our concert. Yes. Yeah, that was, at our that concert was the first one. Yeah. down. Right. And, it, and Tyler Perry, he decides that he wants to come over and see us. The man has made some major achievements. Yes, he has. <laughs> well, it has been an absolute thrill for me to talk with you. Marilyn McCoo, Billy Davis Jr., thank you so very much. Well, thank you, Lois. Lois, it's been thank a you. pleasure. Thank you for inviting us to yes. come and spend some time with you. We've really enjoyed it. Davis Jr. and Marilyn McCoo will perform at the Rialto Center for the Arts this Saturday, January 21st. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, the restaurateurs behind Decatur's Kimball House celebrate their purchase of the 136-year-old train depot that houses their award-winning eatery. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Development in Atlanta is booming, and a common narrative is that many older businesses are disappearing. Either they can't keep up with rising commercial rent prices, or the buildings they occupy are sold and torn down. Well, the owners of the award-winning restaurant Kimball House have turned that narrative upside down and successfully secured their future in the process. 
They are now the proud owners of the 136-year-old former train depot that houses their nationally recognized eatery. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes recently caught up with two of the five Kimball House owners, Kizzy Patel and Jesse Smith. Patel began by giving an overview of the restaurant. I think when people think about it, of the restaurant, the first thing that comes to mind is oysters and cocktails. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our other partners, Miles McQuarrie, has um, been the backbone of the, of the bar since we opened and has crafted an incredible cocktail program and trains the staff in such a diligent manner. And they just have so much fun behind the bar. And it's definitely one of the things that guests look forward to the most was starting off with a with a cocktail to go along with oysters. One of our other partners, Brian Rackley, heads up the oyster program and has spent years cultivating these incredible relationships with oyster farmers and harvesters from around the country and has been able to source some of the, the, the best oysters that, that are available. And um, we generally have a menu of 15 to 18, 20 um, different appellations of oysters every single night, thanks to his work. That's fantastic. And Jesse, again, for the unfamiliar, I love the story of how Kimball House came to be, because my understanding is that you all had a connection previously to the Brickstore Pub in Decatur. Is that accurate? That is true. We um, we all found ourselves working there for, geez, but I worked there for about six years. Brian and Matt worked there for 10, I believe. But yeah, I mean, the Belgian beer bar had just opened and we were in our early 20s and just, uh, well, drinking a lot <laughs> and, uh, and and working together. And we were completely inspired and it just kind of, it just kept kept going from there. And uh, I, we probably started talking about it in 2003 or four and finally opened in 2013. So it took a minute. And there was many uh, iterations of what that bar would be like before Kimball House. And I'm, I'm happy with where we landed. Understandably happy. Kizzy, forgive me if I've gotten this wrong, but you did not work at Brickstore, right? You were a regular? Yes, I had discovered the beautiful pocket of the city that is Decatur sometime in 2012. I used to live outside the perimeter at that time. And um, I had fell in love with the brick store and Matt and Brian and some of the other gentlemen that worked there at the time had introduced me to this whole new world of beer and Belgian beer and um, just got to know, got to know those guys. That's just lovely. So how did you guys originally secure the depot as the home for Kimball House? We had been looking for a location. We originally wanted to be in Atlanta proper just because we felt like Decatur had so many great restaurants. And so we were looking around Glenwood area and stuff like that. And everything that was available was a new restaurant. And we realized that we just did not have the funding for that. And so we had heard that the the restaurant that was in the Decatur Depot at the time was going out of business. So we went to check it out and it seemed perfect. You know, it had a sense of antiquity to it, which was a big part of our concept. It just seemed perfect. Even though we were trying to branch out from Decatur, it's like, well, it looks like it's pulling us back in. And so we basically partnered in our bosses at the time and they, they were basically like investment partners. Um, oh, and so excellent. We, we, we were able to do every like the concept that we wanted with complete creative control and they believed in it. So 
we just made it happen. That is so cool. And do either of y'all know the history of the depot itself that you could share? Uh, I know it was built in 1891 and was at some point in, I believe, the 80s, it became, it was a functioning train station and it became sort of this famous bluegrass bar called the Freight Room, which one of my favorite things about working services at Kimball Houses, when like an older couple will come in and I'll be like, have you been here before? And they'll be like, a lot, but never as Kimball House. And oh, and, wow. and it would be like the story of, oh yeah, we 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 fell in love at the at the Freight Room and now we're married and and this is our first time back since it's become what it is now. And so well, we'll get a lot of that. And they're usually characters. So I really enjoy when that when those occasions happen. Oh, that's a fantastic story. How could that not warm your heart when you're working? Very cool. Well, I heard that since opening in 2013, Kimball House has taken on extensive maintenance and preservation costs. Were those done in partnership with the Historic Preservation Commission of Decatur? Absolutely. Every every move we make that has any sort of like cosmetic or anything that, that treats the outside of the building has to go through that board. And we, I think we've proven that we're on the same page with them, that we, that's part of why we like that building and why we were drawn to it in the first place was to kind of continue that preservation. So I think that when we were moving forward with wanting to purchase it, that that made it like a, an easy deal because they knew we were going to be good stewards of the, of the building. What makes this deal with Decatur's Downtown Development Authority so unique? Well, the whole purpose of it was an act of preservation. The building was going to be demolished at some point. CSX didn't want it on the train tracks anymore. And so the city of Decatur wanted to preserve the building. And so they purchased it and moved it off of the train tracks onto city land. So that was the starting point for this whole, whole thing was just to preserve the building. You know, this is not an everyday situation where your landlord is literally the city and that their intentions of being landlords is just an act of preservation. So we were in a fortunate circumstance to even be able to approach them to purchase the building because they had already done the job that they wanted, wanted to do. They preserved the building. They were not in the business of being landlords. And so it's not your everyday sort of like a restaurant goes in and is able to purchase the building, especially amongst the landscape of these big development companies that are able to purchase up building after building. Did you think about that when you originally went into the agreement about how special it would be to actually be in partnership with a city versus a private owner? I think that we recognized that we had found a good deal, but mm -hmm. I don't think that we, it, as far as the long-term it's definitely not on, on our minds, mainly because we were so into the day-to-day -day of operating a restaurant and the difficulties that come along with that. But it's definitely a fortunate circumstance for us. Very cool. And Kizzy, as a group, when did you decide to pursue purchasing the building? I think when the opportunity sort of first arose in like the spring of 2022. Um, so it, it wasn't something that we had really been considering for all that long. It all came together relatively quickly for a deal of this nature, but it wasn't something that you know we had really thought about seriously years ago, or especially coming out of the pandemic and the challenges of 2020 and 2021. I think in those two years, we were really just focusing on maintaining the restaurant and the business and, and taking care of our staff. Um, and then as we were coming out of that and we were you know, no longer just surviving and 
we were thriving and things were looking better all around, that was when the consideration started, you know, presenting itself and became more serious. Did it seem at the time accessible as a goal? Were there challenges? There, there absolutely were. A, a small restaurant like ours, even though we're very busy and um, you know, grateful to have the recognition and the acclaim that we have. You know, it's the the margins are thin, and and it's the opportunities to to grow are few and far between. And and when they do come up, we have to think about them uh, in a in a very careful and serious manner, and try not to take un- unnecessary risks. But I think the this the city and the downtown the Decatur Development Authority were just really happy to work with us and. I personally like just gained a sense that they wanted this to happen. They mm-hmm. wanted us to become the stewards of the building and to you know, to see us, you know, take the reins on continuing the the legacy of the building and and working to to preserve it and maintain its historic nature and also you know maintain that nature of it being a, a landmark in in the the old depot district of Decatur. That's fantastic. Do you have any plans for expansion? I had heard a rumor that maybe you were going to build an outdoor area. Oh, yeah. So we've like, you know, the pandemic has definitely shown a little bit of a light on how important outdoor dining has become. But it also, you know, for us, it was like something that we just didn't have the bandwidth to do in years prior. And it it forced us into it. And for the better, truthfully, it's and to be able to put energy into the outdoor space and making sure that the building is beautiful that's that's where our intentions lie and then you know we've always had the garden and and whatnot so trying to keep up with the landscaping is another hurdle of its own that we're putting our energies into as well consistent challenges as restaurateurs that's what i'm hearing and now property owners jesse smith and kizzy patel of the kimball house speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. More information about their purchase of the historic Decatur train depot is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, artist Michael Heffernan combines poetry with visual art in his new exhibition, Wayfinding, amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. The new exhibition, Wayfinding, by the Irish-born painter Michael Heffernan, explores the overlap in visual and poetic language through abstract conceptual works. Each painting is paired with a poem written by Heffernan. His show is on view at the Marietta Cobb Museum of Art through March 12th, Michael Heffernan joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. What a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you for joining me. Before discussing this exhibition, I wanted to ask, what prompted your move from Ireland to the American South? I moved to 
the American South and, and to Atlanta specifically in 1989, moved from, from Ireland with my family, with my wife, Catherine, and two children. And Catherine was given an opportunity and was recruited by Piedmont Hospital in Dublin, actually, because of a tremendous shortage of nurses at the time. And, you know, we didn't know a great deal about the South, to be honest. I mean, our view in those days of America was really, you know, around the New York area, I guess. So we came to the South. I was fortunate enough to join C Group, which was an industrial design firm at the time in Atlanta. And we quickly, you know, settled in. And that was really the start of our new life here in Atlanta. Hmm. How did your time in isolation during the pandemic inspire the works in wayfinding, Michael? The pandemic for me, and of course, a lot of people was tremendously challenging. Um, I, I had a heart attack in 2018 while cycling on the Silver Comet Trail. Mm. And fortunately, Joe Hicks, who's a, a park worker for, for the Cobb County Parks and Recreation System saved my life, literally. Um, I discovered later that my, my Widowmaker was 99% blocked. So there oh wasn't my. a lot of time. And Widowmaker, this is your heart, I mean. My heart, I... yes, yeah. It's the main artery that you know feeds the bloodstream to the lower part of the body. So having gone through that trauma and recovery and then roll into the pandemic, and you know, I, like other people, had to be very careful uh, because of my, the damage to my heart, you know, went into isolation and was very careful not to be exposed. And fortunately, I had a, a studio to go to every day. So in that isolating period um, from 2020, 21, 22, it gave me a lot of time to think and to uh, refine uh, my practice. And uh, I was lucky that I could, you know, throw myself into my painting. Oddly enough, in the summer of 2020, I had a very vivid dream one night in June of 2020 about one day in my childhood on my grandparents' farm in County Tipperary. And the, the dream was so vivid. Um, I got up about three in the morning and started making notes. And that ultimately turned into a poem called Summer Hill. And that was the first time I'd really written a poem. And it sort of kicked off a love of, of expression in that format and found that I was able to dig into my own uh, feelings and a, a new level of, of understanding of what was going on around me and how to cope with what was going on around me. And that sort of led to the, the synthesis of the efficiency of language and poetry and the efficiency of language and the joy of painting. And somehow they merged um, during that period. And I, like other people, was just finding my way through, you know, a complex world um, with the pandemic and all of the other things that were going on socially and economically. What a story, though. That dream, that vivid memory of your grandparents' farm. Yes. And finding its way from your subconscious into words that would accompany a painting. I'm curious about the process for the works in this show. What came first, the 
paintings or the poems? The poems came first. What's interesting is that the, the writing is driving the painting. And I've, I guess I've written almost 30 poems at this point. And I'm not somebody who, you know, sits down every day and, and writes poetry. I'm constantly thinking about language, though, and thinking about concepts and ideas. And the first manifestation of that is usually in a poem. And, and then I literally have the poem in my hand when I start the process of painting. And, and my, my, my practice is really, I, I think about the size of the work. I think about the shape of the work. I build my own stretchers. I stretch my own canvas. I kind of prepare everything. And I do all this with the poem at one side. And unlike a lot of other painters who paint work simultaneously, and a lot of my work is large, I, I tend to focus on one painting at a time because it's a very immersive process for me. So between the, the language of the poem and the great thing about poetry is you can say a lot between the lines. It's very similar to painting, you know, especially abstract forms of painting. They're emotive and they're very expressive. And I found the, the overlap between the process of writing and the process of painting in that way was seamless. And that's, that, that was very exciting. Michael, would you tell us, please, about the title of the exhibition, Wayfinding, and how that term relates to these works? Well, I think Wayfinding, I thought, was a good way to summarize the exhibition and the works because of the time in which the work was created. And I, like everybody else, would just find my way through, you know, a complex world of fast information, divisive politics, you know, social unrest during that period with Black Lives Matter, with all manner of protests of, you know, the looming pandemic in the background of over a million people dead, some denialism with respect to science and, and masking and the, indeed the weaponizing of masking in certain certain times. So all of that is a backdrop, along with just in isolation. Um, I had to find my own way of finding my way through all of this and creating work that I found was meaningful for me and meaningful for me to, to understand my place in all of this. And it was a platform, really, that is summarized in Wayfinding, which also culminated in a poem of the same name. And I found that my my respite from my studio was to walk the banks of the Chattahoochee River, which I do regularly still, and indeed Kennesaw Mountain and Cove Farm, and those places were safe to to be during the pandemic. And you know, I was very inspired, of course, by nature. And in now my world, like other people's worlds, has shrunk to our neighborhoods. But I realized that the joy of nature and the the influence of nature in as we walk through this life is really really important but we have to be still enough and listen to what nature offers around us and and understand if one's quiet enough to listen to your interior landscape your interiority and the external natural world because i think in in that gap is imagination. And we're all born with imagination if we stop and listen in the threshold to that gap 
that I've just referenced. Would you share the inspiration or even just recite for us one or two of the poems? I would be happy to recite Wayfinding as the sort of anchor poem of what I just described with respect to how nature and my walks on the Chattahoochee helped uplift my you know, downtrodden self during this period. I should say, I've never shared any poetry up until the opening. Um, I don't consider myself a poet per se, um, especially coming from Ireland, and especially not writing very long. But it's deep within me, and I love doing it. And so I also recognize during this period, in order to, as an artist, in order to be serious about one's work, that you have to be prepared to be vulnerable. And, and therefore, I said, you know, to hell with it, here goes, and, and uh, <laughs> here's my poetry, and so on and so forth. So the, poet, the poem is called Wayfinding. Summer's sultry light rims brown red slick shallows, bloated night swells swirl, feelings lie fallow, branch and limb heave awakening, drooping damp thick fog weaving its unseeable spell, shards lamp dark clot of waters to masquerade, a nod and branches mysteriously dance and fade. Leaves perk upward, twirl themselves, arborescent hands raised, lifting the spirit, unfolding anew, applauding the day, lightening the weight of my soul as if my soul could be weighed, yet my mind feels lighter in moody shade. Memory's roots entangle underfoot, unhinging my night from day. Sodden lungs heavy, limbs tighten still, Slowly branches of my ribs open, my fluttered heart lifts in a glance. Tears well and hope renewed, wayfinding contours of interiority, shading nature and self-hidden, yearning the transcendent quiet whispers of imagination's tell. Embracing the frontier of truth and light beyond shadows, dreaming, seeking higher ground in the quiet threshold, listening, wandering life's hidden travails, Hope for emancipation risen with each upward unfolding leaf, an emblem, a force majeure, a hopeful opus, no hocus pocus, my unseeable, vulnerable soul. That's exquisite. Thank you. That's kind of the, I suppose, the summary backbone of the exhibition. And the exhibition contains, I selected 10 poems that drive the 26 paintings, some of them are in series, and they explore the whole question of imagination, interiority, and nature, and where they, where they intersect as a source of strength. Artist Michael Heffernan, Wayfinding is on view at the Marietta Cobb Museum of Art through March 12th. More information is available on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9, tomorrow at 11 a.m., virtuoso clarinetist David Schifrin discusses his upcoming performance with the Emory Chamber Music Society of Atlanta. Plus, we'll hear about our sacred world. 
An Opera with Dance by Amy Leventhal. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with music legends Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr., you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE.